Hi, everybody. Welcome to Oscar Poker. This is Sasha Stone with AwardsDaily.com. And Jeffrey Wells with Hollywood Elsewhere in Wilson, Connecticut. And Jeff is at a Starbucks talking through his um, Beats headphones. So it's... How do you know they were Beats? Because you said they were. Yeah, they are. I didn't know. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't sound... It doesn't sound great, and and mm-hmm. but but it's the best we can do. So it's either this or no podcast. Okay. So, so can we jump into the poll to the two Paul Schrader sure topics? Okay, the first one, which I think is probably the most interesting of the two, <laughs> is um, he wants to. He has written, I should say, a script called. Uh, Three Guns at Dawn, I think is what it's called. I'm, I'm going by memory because I'm not reading the thing. Um, three, three Guns at, at Dawn, that's right. And it's basically about a, a corrupt uh, people, uh, three, three characters from South Central, and one's a crooked cop, and one's a drug dealer, and one's somebody else on the, on the bad side, the wrong side of the law. And uh, it sounds like a, it's a great title, you know, right away you want to watch it because of the title. But basically, he doesn't feel... Uh, Paul doesn't uh, that he has the he'll just get attacked for cultural appropriation. This, despite Antoine Fuqua, who has read the script, who has set the financing up with the folks at Netflix, it's all done. It's just a matter of you know does Paul direct it alone or Paul wants to to be on the safe side have Antoine co-direct it, who figures that will protect him from charges of cultural appropriation. I think personally, and Jordan Rumi has said in his column this morning, that it's cowardly, really. It's it's wimpy to say, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to be attacked with cultural appropriation. So I'd like to take the uh, safe route. Now, I, if I were a Netflix person, I would not uh, rebel at that arrangement if they wanted to co-direct it, sure. But why does Paul feel like he can't direct a, a movie about three bad bad egg brothers in a tough situation is obviously what it what it means by that title three guns are gone so i would say uh sure either way i would say paul you directed yourself and we're cool with that uh because after all you guys are a team antoine's producing he's a, he's a supporter of the script he thinks it's good he wants to see it made and so on so that's where it's at what do you think what is your reaction to this? um well i hadn't heard about this i thought we were going to be talking about paul schrader with killers of the flower moon that's the next topic that's topic b right um so just think on your feet you know what what you think about this stuff do you do you think that it's probably safer to dodge the slings and arrows that will probably come from people in the black community and the people who don't who don't want a white guy having anything to do with the tail about men of color because he hasn't got the authority he hasn't got the you know he, he shouldn't be doing that that's the general thesis or the philosophy of what he goes by if you're a you can't if you were to remake philadelphia you can only have a gay man playing the tom hanks character tom, a straight man can't do it according to hanks anyway um, you know anything you have to have the cultural uh tribal authority to play someone or direct them that's the general thinking Right. Um, well, I, uh, after what happened with Killers of the Flower Moon and Martin Scorsese, yeah. um, I what could happened? see, well, I mean, they had to completely change the movie, right? They had to right. make a totally different film 
in order to appease the activists. So basically what they're doing is they're not really making art. What they're right. making is some sort of um, guidebook on how to think, what to think, how we should interpret things, how we're supposed to feel about things. It's a story that can only be told one way. And that's right. frankly kind of boring for people. Unless they belong to the church, and if they belong to the church, then they're, then they're going to be, they're going to feel really good. Now, I'm not saying that people who go see Killers of the Flower Moon, who aren't true believers, won't enjoy it. I've, I've actually seen that people do, if they're interested in history and they want to see that, they're, they're into it, right? But yeah, but uh, do you know anybody who's really a hundred percent about Killers of the Flower Moon? They think it's just magnificent. They can't get it up. No problem. I do. I I know more people who like it than don't like it. Put it that way. But okay. but here's the thing: is that the problem with Killers of the Flower Moon is that the story, uh, as told, isn't what the movie is. So if you care about that, if you care about the original story, then it's it's you know. It's the problem that Paul Schrader is finding himself in, which is that there are stories that cannot be told, even if they're the truth. So, but I, he wrote this thing during the pandemic, he says. Yes, he did. I'm, I'm just wondering why. Actually, no, no, he, he wrote it during the strike, he says. Oh, during the strike, right. The writer's so, strike, yeah. So I'm just wondering why. Why would why he, didn't write? he write it? Yeah. Well, because there's a part of him that's very, uh, tough-minded and uh and he's uh he does he's not a go along with the flow type of guy and he's always been willful in his scenarios and uh and you know as you know the last three films have been kind of self-portraiture you know a man sitting in a room or a character sitting in a room writing on a on a uh, pad uh, talking about his uh his history and who he is and all that stuff <laughs> but this is uh this is like maybe do you remember blue collar uh, not mm -hmm. blue collar. Yes, blue collar with Richard Pryor and uh, uh, is it Yafa Koto? And there's one other. Uh, uh, there's a white guy. Basically, three Detroit guys who were labor, uh, you know, part of a factory, and they decide to rob the factory or pull off a bank job of some sort. Remember that? Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of a, a similar thing, you know. Uh, apparently, I mean, you know, so he's he's willing to to go there because he's got a, a strong willful writers imagination but i guess because just maybe you get older you don't have the same <clears throat> pugnaciousness uh you'll have to basically say well do i want to go through all this grief because i know what's going to happen yeah. i remember what happened when sam mendes <clears throat> who uh dared to make a film about an interracial romance between a very very young maybe 20 21 year old uh man of color um played by michael ward and yeah. a middle-aged woman uh, played by um, Olivia Coleman, uh, he got murdered for that because you can't do that. The wokester said you can't make a film about a black character dealing with you know horrible racism and skinheads and all that stuff. That's mm -hmm. not your thing. They didn't say that, of course. They lied as they always do, and they came out with their rationales for disliking. It's all bullshit. They're just flyers and cowards. They just wanted to. He just said, that's not cool. You can't do that. White guys can't do that. Now, if a character played by Michael Ward, if you saw, it's called Empire of Light. I should have mentioned that. But if you have seen it, you know that if the Michael Ward character had been instead a uh, a young white guy, he's 20 years old, you know, basically somebody who's like uh, Sam Mendes was when he was young, 
nobody would have said a thing. They would have said, "Okay, it's pretty good," you know, or they, mm-hmm. you know, but they wouldn't have put it down the way they did because of Michael Ward. So that's that's the way these monsters are. Um, so, well, the thing is, is they care more about um, their status. Somebody like Paul Schrader cares more about his status inside the ruling class than he does telling a good story. Well, that's a that's it's a rough a rough judgment. <laughs> but you're well, probably, isn't it true? I think it's I think it's true at the state. I mean, I don't think and he's people... he's he's not the only one. Everybody in Hollywood is that way. Right. That's why we're in the position that we're in. Uh, you know. Stepping back, if uh, there's a nice simple solution, and I would co-direct it with with uh, with uh, Antoine. Antoine should just say, "Sure, let's co-direct it. Why not?" Uh, that's what I would do, rather than ask for all the trouble. And it would still be the same thing. And you know Antoine Fuca, he's not a lily-livered sidestepper. He, you know, he, if there's an action film with, with tough stuff going on, shoot, shootings and whatnot, he's a pretty pretty strong director. I don't think he's my cup of tea exactly, but <clears throat> has there been an Antoine Fuca that you, a film that you've been pretty down with, pretty happy with? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't say whether this will be good or not. Like, I just don't know. I'm not saying it would be good. Whatever it is, they want to make it, is what I'm saying. Right? That's all I'm saying. We don't know what it is, but we have an idea that it's going to be a, a rough and tumble action film of some sort. It involves drug dealers and bad cops, obviously. So. And, um, all right, so this is what I would say to Paul Schrader. I would say, damn the torpedoes, bro. Make the yeah. movie. You know, be right. a hero, you know, be a hero to people like my daughter who think I really want to write this book. Oh, no, I can't write this book because <laughs> just take the slings and arrows. Allow yourself to be hated. Get yourself booted out of the ruling class. So what? Yeah. Why do you want I mean, their he, approval anyway? He's nudging uh, 80 as we speak. He's uh, he's got a, a very proud and, and, and distinguished record. What What's he got to lose? Nothing. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> so and I got yelled at, by the way, by a certain party already. Uh, you want to hear the? You want to hear the yell? Yes, I do. Well, from what? From what? Is it? Is it in well, your messages? Not in my open messaging. In my, uh, uh, it's the person who reads the column. Uh, here's the first remark. Uh, between loyalty to you and your lunatic crusade against Flora Moon and loyalty to Scorsese. For Schrader, it's no contest. Schrader actually owes Scorsese. Nobody owes you a damn thing. Uh-oh. And don't come back and don't come back with he owes the fruit. And I said to him, well, okay, but it's cowardly to attempt a walk back. And then I mentioned Tom Petty, you know, don't back down. All right. Well, first you have to explain what you're talking about because now you switch subjects. We're no longer on Paul Schrader's well, we're movie. Part, we're, we're partly because okay, yes, all right, all right, we're now he's addressing what uh, the first Paul Schrader thing, which is that Paul Schrader said in a conversation with some guy in Europe who's been in Italy for some time, and he said that basically he was uh, he found that. Uh, if Marty's more of a fresco painter and he's more of a Flemish miniaturist. Uh, and Marty, give Marty uh, 200 million and he'll make a good movie. Uh, but he'll make it basically one of his frescoes. 
And what what uh, has happened here with Gillers Flower Moon <laughs> is uh, the same conclusion that I think you made, and I know I have made, which I would probably have been a more interesting film if they'd stuck with the David Grand book. I made the main character, uh, Tom White, and have Leonardo DiCaprio play the intrepid FBI guy and have uh, Ernest Burkhart uh, be a, a scurvy, low-life supporting character. But that's not what they did. They decided to make Ernest Burkhardt the lead, the main character, not 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 Lily. She's she's the supporting character also. But they went with um, <clears throat> Ernest Burkhardt being the you know, and, and and Paul Schrader in his post in his comments that that basically Marty stuck us for three and a half hours with an idiot, and spending three and a half hours with an idiot is a long time, which I completely agree with. And uh, in response to that, I said, uh, well, no, I didn't say anything, actually. He just said, that's what he said. And uh, it was apparently, I thought that, and then, and then Paul today said, he only found out that this remark about Marty's film blew up on the internet a few days ago. Roger Friedman had written him on email and say that remark has blown up. And he tried to walk it back today by saying, uh, basically, I, <clears throat> if you ask me, I said, I told Marty when I saw it that it's a very strong, very good film. I still say that, <laughs> but, um, he kind of basically tried to say, well, I didn't really mean it or it doesn't matter, or, you know, but basically he said, um, uh, that this movie is three and a half hours with an idiot played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And he, um, well, I, I think it would be a, a kind of a, you know, not uh, stick to your gun. If he said that, he, that's what I said on my Facebook post. Don't walk it back. You know, if you feel that way, I I agree with you. And other people, you know, given their assent. Uh, anyway, so that's what happened. And I said it's cowardly to attempt to walk back. And then the person who writing me said, "Then call Schrader a coward." Full on, I dare you. <clears throat> it, <laughs> as much of a shitster that he is. He's also a genuinely deep and thoughtful person. Implication, I am not a deep yes, and thoughtful Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> if you want him to solo direct that food book project because you think it would be fun for him to piss off black people on your behalf, that oh, is truly dear. <laughs> Oh, boy, okay. <laughs> I, and, I, and I said, you need to take a pill of some kind. And his response, ha, that's pretty funny coming from you. Because oh, Schrader Lord. is important. Because Schrader is cordial to you on Facebook, you've allowed yourself the delusion that you and he are peers equal compadres. I don't, I get how this is a comfort to you, but it's still a delusion. Oh my this God. Is, this is the delightful world of online conversation. Oh. <laughs> so. That is harsh. Oh, that's a I harsh. Don't, I don't think that, I don't think he's a peer, obviously. He's a filmmaker. I'm a journalist, but, uh, I've had dealings with him, and you know, I write him every now and then, private email. Um, I don't see what the problem is. You know, I've been at this well, racket for a long time. So you time. should I ask remember. the question huh? to ask the question to ask your friend is this: yeah. If mm -hmm. if Schrader didn't want to piss off black people, why did he write the story? 
Why did he write the screenplay? Was his intention that he would write it and somebody else would direct it to provide a shield? See, my problem with what's happening into the elite ruling class, which I'm just about to write, I'm writing an article called Lessons for Hollywood and the Oscars heading into 2024. Okay. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to have to read over it and try to, you know, clean it up a little and, and edit it. But the problem with what they're doing now in Hollywood mm -hmm. is that they are telling stories for themselves, for the people inside the bubble, for the people inside the Royal court, in my opinion, obviously people will mm -hmm. disagree with me on this, but this is how I see it. Mm -hmm. And they use people of color as shields, as ways to absolve themselves of their sins, to protect them. Yes. So they right. cast them in ways that they put, they literally during the protests in the summer of 2020, they had they were playing this weird May game. May June of twenty twenty, yeah. Wasn't they, really they, like even in May. even in even in Santa Monica, mm -hmm. they would have they would play this this weird theater activist theater where they would say put all the white people in front of the black people so that the black people don't get sh shot by the police in Santa Monica, <laughs> and and I just always thought that was so funny that they were so into this drama this fake story that the police were going to be out there shooting black and brown people that they had mm -hmm. to hurl and, and they do this in the evergreen documentary too like put all the white people in front so the people of color are protected right and that's what hollywood is doing now only in reverse they're putting people of color out there like for instance Halle bailey in uh the little mermaid or whoever it is and that person is mm -hmm. to be the symbol that protects them even though they're still the people in charge they're still the people in power they're still the people making all the money it's still very much a white male dominated industry and country and world mm -hmm. the people in front of them representing them are all people of color marginalized groups to make it seem as though the thing has been equaled out and that justice has been rendered in hollywood it, it, to me it's phony mm -hmm. on top mm -hmm. of everything else so in so doing they have alienated the majority because most sensible people look at that and understand it for the fraud that it is yeah and and they're not into it right they just want stories good stories just give us good stories just tell us stories we don't care right but people like yeah, right. yeah. I'm just saying that in the end, the problem is that um, a guy like Paul Schrader wants to tell this story, has a story to tell, but knows he'll mm -hmm. be attacked and he would be um, for appropriating culture. And so basically what they're advocating for is a segregated society, a society where only people of color are allowed to tell stories about people of color. Right. And then only white people are allowed to tell stories about white people. But if they do that, they'll be punished because they're not mm -hmm. allowed to only tell stories about white people. So right. a guy like Paul Schrader and my daughter, whatever, they're supposed to sit on their hands, you know, and not do anything. Right. Don't tell stories about white people. Don't tell stories about people of color. Just don't tell stories, period. Right. So the the fix for that is to damn the torpedoes, is to say, fuck it. I'm going to tell this story. You like it, mm -hmm. you don't. If you don't like it, don't come see it. If you like it, come see it. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to give up on this idea of their reputation inside the royal court. They just have yeah. to. As of hard course. as it is to do, you have to allow yourself to be hated 
look at what happened to um, somebody like Dave Chappelle or Ricky Gervais or any of these people who've been canceled. They're free not, now. Dave, Dave Chappelle is fine. He's not canceled. I mean, he's been attacked by the trans community, but he's not. He's doing fine, obviously. And he's very. Well, that's visible. what I mean. He's free now. He's free. Mm -hmm. He's free right. to say what he wants. And mm -hmm. that's where you have to be. That's where everybody has to be if they want to be a storyteller. Paul Schrader has to be there. He has to mm -hmm. say, my bona fides are good enough. People right. know that I'm not a racist. People know that I'm not a white supremacist. I'm a storyteller. Just mm -hmm. like Shakespeare was a story storyteller when he made Macbeth. Right? right? So, you know, when Shakespeare was making writing plays they had to have men play women because they weren't you know women weren't allowed to to be on stage as the great mm -hmm. movie shakespeare in love talks about so you know these are these are rules that have to be pushed through um i don't know look if he wants to direct it he should direct it and if people come at him they come at him so what let them have their voice move on not like he has to um be concerned about the direction of his career 10 years from now or 20 years from now he's at the end we all know that he's near the near the end uh so well if you're if you're afraid then what you're what you're doing is you're saying i accept the idea that i am a white supremacist mm. well, i'm going to step aside so that i don't look like a white supremacist right mm-hmm um, the alternative is making all the characters white and telling that story in the white community. That's right. what you do if you don't want to be screamed at, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that uh, here's the uh, definition of the film or synopsis, according to Jordan. Uh, the script is set in Los Angeles, the South Central District, concerns three brothers, a dirty cop, a serial killer, and a drug dealer. Now, those, those are it's not exactly. Uh, totem that you really want to have no you shouldn't he shouldn't have written it it should be white people in like kentucky in some like you know meth or uh, you know fentanyl infused that's a good idea, out right town there. in the middle of america where they have nothing left no hope mm -hmm. except to turn to drugs and crime tell that story and it would be great he doesn't mm -hmm. paul schrader knows nothing about life as a black man in the city, whether it's a serial killer or criminal. Why is he? So in my opinion, either stand behind what you've written or change it so that it's more authentic. If people are looking for authenticity in storytelling, they're not going to want to see Paul Schrader tell the story, right? Mm -hmm. So it's his choice, either damn the torpedoes, full steam right. ahead, take, you know, take your slings and arrows or mm -hmm. change it. Tell it in a way that people will accept that'll have a lot more resonant because maybe you know what you're talking about. You know, maybe. Okay. I don't um, I would tell that story a hundred times more than I would tell the story he's trying to tell, which has been told. What? What, the three brothers who hate each other? Well, it's American it's American guys? it's American fiction, right? It's American fiction. It's white people telling stories about downtrodden black people. Mm. And and maybe they Maybe the world doesn't need another one of those. I think you're completely on target when you say it should be a Kentucky thing about fentanyl and all. That's a good idea. It really is. That yeah, works. They, I don't know why exactly it works because you can, because that's where you can find serial killers. How many black serial killers do you know? There aren't many. Maybe I one. Don't. 
I don't know what the statistics are, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. There it's a many. it's a it's a white man's game serial killing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I've never heard but that. it is. <laughs> I'm not disputing it. I'm just saying I've never had that that word. And that it's sentence. it's always going on in some sad little town, you know, like hiding yeah, under the always, radar. And the and the serial killer is always a quiet guy. Nobody knows him that well, but he's quiet and he's uh, you know doesn't bother anybody. And he lives on his own. Yeah, yeah. So my question for Paul Schrader would be, why did you want to tell this story in the first place? What, what's the point of it? Mm. Why? And I, I'm not putting him on the spot. I'm just genuinely curious. Why would you want to tell this story? Well, um, okay, but I don't know that he's completely, he, he is an observer of the human condition. He did make blue collar way back in the late 70s. No, I know, but why this story? With with three brothers that hate each other, is it like a takeoff on a Shakespeare thing? Is it you know mm -hmm. why this story? Why why black people? You sound like a wokester right now. You're saying no. I'm don't. asking. I just want to know. I'm curious. I'm not asking okay. him in an accusatory way. I'm genuinely mm -hmm. like I would be genuinely curious. Why did Scorsese want to tell the story of Killers of the Flower Moon? Like why? Well, he wanted to, as you have recounted in this conversation, he began by wanting to adapt David Grant's book. I was told that in so many words by Leonardo DiCaprio at a party at um, uh, way back when, sometime in 19, I think it was, about what it was going to be. And then they changed their mind. We can't do this. Because yeah, because it's a great story. The stories of Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a great story, but it's only a great story if you tell it from the point of view of the FBI. Right. Not the point of view of the Osage, because frankly, no, that's the point of view of the culprit of the kill, one of the killers, right? It's not kind the point of. of he kind of does that, but it's sort of like the movie gives birth to another movie two thirds of the way through. Can I ask you what in what way does is that film represent the viewpoint of the Osage, other than oh. God, this is awful. Another family member has been murdered. Or well, that's dead. what I'm just saying. That's what they were trying to do. That's what they were ordered. That's what they had to do to retell the story. They had to change it to being from the different perspective because that's what they were told they had to do. Right. So that they wouldn't be attacked. Just like with Paul. Go ahead. I was just saying in Paul Schrader's case, it would be the same type of situation. If he had to make accommodations so people wouldn't get mad, what do you lose in the process of doing that? Uh-huh. Right. right. Yeah. So he said my... in so many words, in can, he said, we figured that it just sounds like we're, uh, it's, 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 we can't tell it from a white person's perspective because it's not really, it, it doesn't feel right. We should tell it from the Osage perspective. That's what he said in so many words. But they don't tell it from the Osage they just let you see Lily Gladstone frowning and kind of like sulking and 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 looking sad and resigned. No, no. I, I mean, you could create, you could make a great movie if you told it from the Osage perspective. Imagine it. Imagine your perspective was from this these tribal people who don't yeah. understand the economy of the United States, who don't understand what it is to have wealth who don't understand anything that's going on and and tell it as a way of like as though you were telling a story from the point of view of someone who couldn't hear in a world of sound and if you're just telling it from their point of view 
and they're going along with these things and all of a sudden people are dying around them how confused they are where they go but that's you're right that that's not how he chose to tell his story but that would have been very interesting it would have been yes it would have been the way you're describing it I, i i agree with you but you're right that he didn't do that. What they did was they just tried to add in mm-hmm. more of the Osage people into the story rather than from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Can we switch to topic uh, C? Yeah, yeah. Let's switch. Let's switch. All right. So one of the first things that I suggested that we could talk about is the is what I call the serious but all but total collapse, at least in terms of esteem and admiration. And, you know, like people like myself, I happen to be in love with Feistel. I was delighted by it. I was moved. As I said, I sat next to a guy, my first viewing, who was weeping. Um, I have, uh, I mean, I feel a lot of, a lot of stuff in that film. Terry Mulligan being first and foremost, but the magnificent filmmaking chops, everything about, I mean, I, I'm really delighted. We're with talking that about Maestro in case you missed Maestro, that. Maestro, yes. Maestro. That's the Bradley Cooper film that is now streaming on Netflix, and it's uh, gotten a lot of a lot of hype, a lot of promotion, and many people in the critical community, which means nothing, by the way. There's one thing that we have that's been wonderful, you know, in a way about 2023. It's that the critics are absolutely marginalized as the crazy, in a way. They're they're the eccentric. They're off on their own planet or on the planet Neptune, way out at the end of the solar system. And the people that are more interesting to hear from are not the, you know, card-carrying critics, but people like yourself, myself, people that argue with us, people on on various social media. There's some people that just pop through, and they're much more interesting to hear from than the critics. And I'm delighted that that's happened, because I if there's one thing you can count on, if you're going to just get a, uh, you know, a bubble opinion when you when you hear from a critic about it. I, mean, I, I in this case, I happen to be completely with them, those who love Maestro. But the fact is that it hasn't fared all that well with average folks. And I'm going to read something that's by the restaurateur Keith McDowell, which is quite a hot shot in New York circles. And here's how what he said. He said, people bang on about how much Bradley Cooper looks like Leonard Bernstein, as if the criteria of the film's greatness is impersonation. One of the many reasons why Maestro doesn't work is because on concentrating on Bernstein's Bernstein's physical details, Cooper has left out the essence of the genius. By the way, I'll never forget that passage in Tom I know. That's so great. I was just thinking about that. And, and, and somebody at his party, at the famous party of Black Panther Party in uh, the summer of 70, uh, a couple of people make the mistake of saying Leonard Bernstein, and he immediately corrects them. Dying! <laughs> yeah. You know, so Jeff is, Jeff is referring to a wonderful Tom Wolfe essay about radical chic, uh, which is a dinner party at Lenny Len, Leonard Bernstein and his wife, Felicia. Felicia. Um, throwing this party and people, you know, all these famous, very, very upper crust people are there and all the bizarre societal rules that they have to follow at this party for the Black Panthers. <laughs> the Black <laughs> Panthers are indicted on like something like charges of, of trying to bomb several buildings. Um, you know, like, did you, and so- did you happen to notice, by the way, that the article mentions uh, 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 um, uh, 
Rustin, uh, Bayard Rustin. The, the no, hero I didn't of see a, that. I, I didn't well, get to he, that part. Because there's a whole dialogue that goes on between the Panthers and the people at the party. And Bayard Rustin didn't come to this particular party because he was threatened. He was told, if you show up, you're going to be, you have reason to have concern for your life. Now, he was, I guess they regarded him as not radical enough, more kind of a. It, well, it's a, either that or because he was gay, they wanted to kill him. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe they didn't even know Leonard Bernstein was gay. But anyway, Maybe. Jeff and I had mentioned in our last podcast, I think, the difference between saying Bernstein and Bernstein and how. And how both of us say Steen because we thought it was offensive to say Stein because it's more Jewish. And so Leonard Bernstein is saying that he refused to play that game mm-hmm. and that he only wants to be referred to as, and he even makes a point at the party to say Stein. <laughs> Stein. He also he does it a second time later in the article. Someone says, Mr. Bernstein, goes, Stein. Yeah. <laughs> so again, it's, it's really funny. It's very funny to read today because um, it, especially like if you look at Dave Chappelle's funny monologue and stuff about the N word um, mm-hmm. and, and Tom Wolf is talking about the struggle session, all these very wealthy white people were going through to try to find ways to, you know, refer mm-hmm. to, to the black community. And um, it's just a brilliant, it, it reminded me of Sydney of uh network um, of, mm-hmm the black panther scene in network when the black panther gets the show and you know the black panthers and and angela davis have this show and they're worried about their ratings and their money (laughs) recruitment yeah it's just a moment that that the very you know sort of the woke of yeah of that era started to be kind of subtly dismantled by people like tom wolf and if anybody had the nerve to write an article like that today first of all new york magazine would never publish it but secondly it would help to bring back some sanity to a this semblance of sanity at the very least yeah yeah but we don't have anybody like that and we don't have courageous writers or publishers who would publish something like that that tom wolf wrote that that is scandalous you know after that piece came out uh, they all decided that wolf was a bad guy the elite of New York, uh, yeah. it was a cruel piece. the The Bernstein children say today it was it was cruel and mean, and it hastened my mother's cancer. She was so upset about it. Oh God, and, uh, that's what she said. Uh, whatever the case was, but I know it says that uh, uh, Alicia wanted to really uh, have her voice heard about the this piece, and she didn't agree with what they're saying. And, right. Uh, well, I grew up thinking, you know, Tom Wolf was right wing. That's what people told me. He is um, kind of a, kind of a uh, yes. Well, I grew up now. Now I appreciate him more than I ever, ever could have imagined because he's a genius and he's funny uh-huh. and he's honest. And we don't have anybody like that on the left today in the mainstream. So whatever you want to call him, you can call him that. But that radical chic piece, that mm-hmm. that one stands the test of time. Um, and it applies absolutely to today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you could you could write an exact similar thing. I thought the, it's such a brilliantly written um, yeah. story. The way he writes about the women in the Black Panther movement is so vivid. You could just see them. And the Roquefort peas and crushed walnuts. And their bodies, the lithe mm-hmm. bodies. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. so great. 
and the insistence upon white servants, or at the very least, South American white servants. And certainly white not servants. servants. They had to have white servants. And right. they, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't. It was just, it was just such a great story. Nobody got off the hook there. Like there, uh-huh. this is a world, this is a genius writer. Um, and I know very few of them on this level who can see, who can, who can take the macro view and look at society from the very top and look down at what's going on and how ridiculous everybody is without taking a side, without needing to say, this is a good person. This is a bad person. It's yeah. just, he's being an anthropologist. He's just saying, this is what this society was like then. And don't you just get it so well, right? You understand it so well, just from reading that. Mm-hmm. You um, know how he, that part, he wasn't actually invited. He, um, his girlfriend who became his wife, I was working in the same office as David Halbert's family, uh, respected uh, democratic activist and writer, author. And he happened to be right next to Halbert Sam's desk, and he saw the invite from Felicia uh, inviting to this thing. And so he just called the number, the RSVP number, and said, this is Tom Wilson, I'm RSVP. And uh, <laughs> please, please accept my RSVP. And that's how he did it. They didn't uh, question him, and he got I love in it. No <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's just, it's such good writing and it's such genius observations of, of human society. Now, if there was a Tom Wolf type figure, David Carr came pretty close um, mm-hmm. when he was alive, um, but even he kind of got caught up in it. I don't know what he would make of today's left. I have no idea what he would make of Hollywood the way it is now, but we're would... desperately in need of Tom Wolf type people to write about, for instance, this Paul Schrader thing. <laughs> like, sure. I mean, imagine Tom Wolf writing about the the movie that Paul Schrader wrote during the strike that he's now too afraid to make as a movie. Like that, that's a great story for Tom Wolf. You know, you don't think that David Carr would be going along with the mob, do you? I think two things about David Carr. One is that I think he would have been canceled because of his history. And Nikki Fink was already heading in that direction before both of them died. She he, was, but he didn't make a. a um, no, he ha- he ha- no, he didn't. But so what? Like, do they care? No. He wrote a book about his history. They don't care. They would have still gone after him if he had dared go after them. Is what I'm saying. Like they'll shut him up using his past with his violence uh-huh. towards women. Who knows what else they would have uncovered? Um. Who Who knows who would have stepped forward and said stuff like. That's what I think, because his past was too controversial to survive. But the other thing I think is that there was a certain side of him that really did like being part of the the in crowd. Like he liked being Kate Winslet's friend. I noticed sure. that toward the end, like he was really happy. I don't know if he'd have the nerve to. Uh, I, I dread what would have happened to him at the New York Times. I think they would have swarmed him and he would have been fired. Um, as hmm. a white as a white person writing in any kind of critical way, as Me all of them are. That's why the New York Times is so mushy now. Yeah. They don't allow people to write stories like that Tom Wolf story. Nowhere on the left mm-hmm. in the mainstream do you see that kind of writing. Nowhere. Right. Right. I mean, unless on the right. You see it on the right, but you don't see it on the left. Um you see it on mm-hmm. Substack, you know, Matt Taibbi's still writing that way on Substack. And um, there I are writers. Matt Taibbi is as funny as Wolf. He doesn't go for the humor. He go, he's he's in a different genre than than 
than Wolf. He's not that kind of a writer. But but Walter Kern is. Walter Kern writes like that. Mm-hmm. And but those guys aren't in the mainstream. They've been shunted to the side. So but the beauty of Tom Wolf is that that got published in New York magazine. So everybody mm-hmm. read it, right? And that's what's lacking today is courage. Right. All right. So what's se- okay. subject number four? Oh, wait, did we so do not- Maestro yet? We haven't finished with Maestro. You basically said, uh, just to continue with what Keith wrote, that you can learn more about Leonard Bernstein by watching five minutes of an interview with the great Stephen Sondheim, which I actually uh, pointed out myself. Uh, you can talk about it. He talks about it. It's imperfect for Bernstein. You can understand more about Leonard than you can by watching the whole two hours and nine minutes of Maestro. Maestro is a well-intentioned film that, that ends up being vain and mediocre, even, and saying little about Bernstein and a lot about Bradley Cooper. I'm sure are you, Cooper, what, 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 are what? you near somebody who's talking or something? <sighs> Not really, but uh, kind of. For some reason, I'm hearing noises that are interrupting what you're oh, saying. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, I, I got to just be honest with you about it and yeah, tell yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Okay. because it sounds weird. Is there a quieter place you can move? Uh, what I'm having to do is go outside, which I am now doing. Is it cold? I'm now, out, I'm now out in the cold weather, but at least there aren't people staring at it. There's this woman who looked at me like, uh, this is not a, uh, the last time I checked, this isn't a library. Uh, there are people that occasionally converse inside a Starbucks. Oh, she so was probably we... looking at you for what you were saying, not for how you were saying it. Because you and I were talking probably about semi-controversial stuff. Paul Strader at the time. And I kept, and, I, and she looked at me once, and, I, and then the second time she looked right at me. And I, and I was like, I put my hands up. I said, yes, yes. Is there something I can help, help you with? Um, I didn't <laughs> think it was bad to have a small chat inside a cafe. But, it isn't. Uh, it isn't. I think she was she was probably commenting on what you were saying because you know, as I said, this isn't the kind of stuff that people are used to hearing. Okay. What, what we talk about. Um. Anyway, so let's go over that again. So basically, read the thing again from the maestro guy because we can now hear you better. Uh well, Sorry. what I'm going to have to do now. I can. Is... I can actually read it if you want. Yeah, me to read I, it? I mean, I, I don't have the computer in front of me now because it's back there. All right, let me read you what the, the maestro side thing eye. is. Uh, mm-hmm. The side eye. <laughs> All right. She was actually see. saying to me, why are you either talking or why are you saying what you're saying? I'm here. I don't like what you're saying. Shut up. What you yeah, exactly, saying. exactly. All okay. right, so this is from Keith McNally, <laughs> NYC. Maestro is a well-intentioned film, but extremely hollow. People bang on about how much Bradley Cooper looks like Leonard Bernstein as if the criteria of a film's greatness is impersonation. One of the many reasons why Maestro doesn't work is because on concentrating on Bernstein's physical details, Cooper has left out the essence of the genius. You can learn more about Leonard Bernstein by watching five minutes of an interview with the great Stephen Sondheim talk about his imperfect relationship with Bernstein than you mm-hmm. can by watching the whole of the two hours, nine minutes of Maestro. Maestro is a well-intentioned film that ends up being vain and ends up being a vain and mediocre one and saying little about Bernstein and a lot about Bradley Cooper. I'm sure Cooper's a decent man, but he needs to look carefully at his first two films as a director 
and understand why the first one, A Star is Born, works and is oddly satisfying and why the second one, Maestro, doesn't work and is supremely hollow. If Cooper understands this, then there's a chance his third film will be worth waiting for. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Wells to Keith McNally. Um, I was really down with the stars born for the first 70 minutes or 60 minutes when they first meet, in other words, and they're kind of getting to know each other and um, they go through all this stuff together. And then, but, but once the, um, once she becomes famous, uh, Lady Gaga and her character becomes superstar and he starts going downhill and his alcoholism. I didn't like it that much. And, and secondly, uh, I found it, tedious to be watching what was it the fourth version of the stars born i wasn't that delighted i mean it was it was really nice as a, as a first you know first act but mm. it wasn't that great uh once it got going because i'm tired of that story over and over again yeah uh, and i and i i actually thought that maestro which he found finds supremely hollow which is he's not wrong it's what he thinks but i found it whirling and and magnetic and uh kind of dazzling in its cinematic uh, flamboyance, if you will, you know, that he really, really uses the camera and makes a real movie that has great moves. And, and I, and I thought that, yes, he leaves out exactly what we all kind of expected we would see when we, uh, heard about a Leonard Bernstein movie, which is <clears throat> something to do <clears throat> with what he cared about and about the music and about his creating this music. <laughs> various, um, <laughs> sorry, not various, um, episodes in his life that were of a creative nature. I mean, it, there's a lot of different kinds of movies that could have been made, but I finally, it's, it's surprising because I went in there with an attitude, kind of a chip on my shoulder, and I was won over. So he's not, his view is not the definitive default view out there, but I have to be honest, uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff like this. A lot of people are saying, "Yeah, I didn't like it. I'm sorry. Uh, and and well, that, I... that seems to be old. I see two things happening. One is a strange backlash on Twitter, which I wasn't expecting, which wasn't there in the beginning. And all of a sudden there's a backlash against Maestro. Uh, How long ago? Well, just like recently, kind mm -hmm. of in the same way we saw with A Star is Born. Remember, it was like the greatest thing in the, in the world. And then all of a sudden it started getting memed and people were making jokes about it. And by right. the end, it wasn't taken seriously at all as an awards contender. And I kind of feel like that's where we are now with Maestro, mm -hmm. which now has a 67 rating audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's plummeting with audiences. Um, Once it's down in the 60s, it might as well be in the 20s and the 30s. Basically, yeah. There's a lot of people who are not down with it. <clears throat> Very surprising. Well, and I know. Surprised. And I, I agree. And so what happened? Well... Mm -hmm. My my problem with the movie, and it's it's you know not. I don't think that Bradley Cooper should direct himself in a bravura performance. Pick one, either be the actor doing a bravura performance, or choose to be the director directing someone else in a bravura performance. Because what was what was wrong with his? Because in that, because what you need a director for is to tell you, just this is a problem with Nyad too, which is that they didn't have directors that would help them with their performances because they were inexperienced. Mm -hmm. They ended up telling a pretty good story anyway. But actors, actors can't act in a vacuum. They need a director mm -hmm. to say, like David Fincher, when he does 90 takes of a scene, 
he's doing that because he's modulating his actors and he's saying, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. That's what imagine Hitchcock. Like that's what makes a great director. Stanley Kubrick, same thing. They care about their performance because the performance, you know, is part of the film. If you're the actor, you do not have that level of, uh, of objectivity. You're, you're in it. So he didn't have the chance to come in and say, okay, the nose looks weird in this scene. Let's calm this one down. Let's do another take of this. And you need a director for that, just like you need a conductor in an orchestra to, to bring the whole thing together. He's sort of suggesting that the conductor isn't necessary, that these musicians can simply just play and play mm-hmm. well, and that'll be fine. No, you need a director. And mm-hmm. I feel like people who think they can do everything can't. Not every writer can direct, and not every director can write, not every actor can write, not every actor can direct. Maybe uh, Bradley Cooper is a good director, but so far of the two movies I've seen, the problems are the performances. The problem for me for Sarsborn was Lady Gaga's terrible performance, and the problem for this one is that Bradley Cooper needs a director. He needs someone to say, let's do that again. That was my main criticism of the film. Mm. Uh, but I do think it's better than A Star is Born, in, which I did not think was a very good movie. Oh. And yeah, I think I, Carrie, Carrie Mulligan is so good in it that she makes it worth seeing because of her right. performance. He, he's always getting in the way, but she's she's worth taking a look at. Yeah. Completely. I thought. Yep. I love her in that scene. The only scene I really liked in the movie was their fight that they have um, because of her. But both of the them Snoopy are Snoopy scene. The Snoopy float scene outside the. Uh, they're they're they like take... well they're like in a room and they're fighting with each other and talking over each other and she's insulting him and. Yes. That scene is so good. They're both so good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I thought was was a real showcase. I, I wasn't a fan of the cathedral scene. I think he overdid it. I, I you know. Oh, that was glorious. I felt. Yeah, but scene. he's not he's not Leonard Bernstein. First of all, and second of all, when people are watching that, they're thinking. Fine. Stein. <laughs> They're he thinking. <laughs> oh God, Stein. <laughs> okay. The hard habit to break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. They're thinking he directed this, so he's directing himself doing that scene, and that I think ruins it for for people. I think if you have a director who gets that performance out of an actor, then it's like wow. Mm. But I think if he's directing himself, you're thinking mm, this is indulgent, you know. Mm. Okay. I don't know. That that's my best explanation. My friend, uh, who's gay, Michael, you know, gay and black, told me that he he had heard that Leonard Bernstein was not just gay but bi, and that he had affairs with women too, and not just men. That would have been fascinating if they, that had been an element, not just she had begun the relationship and the marriage. In fact, that they were understanding that he he was going to have his little affairs on the side with men. But mm-hmm. if he had been also uh, cheating on her with uh, women, wow, that would have been fascinating. Yeah, I don't know you if know? it's true, but that's what he said. So, well, did he? I'm presuming he didn't know him or didn't know his immediate circle. So, where? How did he pick this up? Where did he get this? I don't know. He said he watched a documentary and heard about it. So, okay. but it also bothered him that there was no West Side Story in it, and that yeah, most too. people know. Leonard Bernstein from that movie mm-hmm. and that to take it out was to take out something significant, you know, the most significant thing. Yeah. 
Um, and so why did he do that? What was the point of that? You know, right. um, I don't know, but all right. And subject the, number four. Okay. Well, I was going to suggest that we could, because I was just reading some stuff that was, uh, that I was writing about in late 22 and early 23, which I regard as the single worst, most horrible Oscar year, which was last year. And I, uh, <clears throat> Uh, I, I don't think that the, the Academy can ever get in such a horrible place as it did last year uh, with uh, EEAAO and the uh, bizarre decisions that were made. Three, three acting awards, Os Oscars went to that cast of EEAAO, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And yeah. um, it also, of course, won Best Picture. And it was just, it was just really the maniac had taken over the asylum and there was just no interest in they just everybody just got on on board they just got on, uh, jumped aboard and i think it was because it was kind of regarded as a bit of a shitty year i guess well the, the, th the same thing that happened last year has happened the year before and, and probably will happen again this year and it doesn't seem to be something we any of us seems able to fix mm -hmm. and that is they they anoint a front runner we anoint a front runner early on and everybody says it's going to win Best Picture from every website, every Gold Derby. This is the movie that's going to win Best Picture. And then, like clockwork, they find some scrappy underdog that they decide that they like better. And, well, actually, you can go back to 2019 for this. The only year it didn't happen was 2020, where Nomadland, you know, was in the lead and never stopped because it was always going to win. So nobody even challenged it. But you had Parasite taking over in 1917. You had uh, Coda taking over the power of the dog. And then you had Everything Everywhere All at Once overtaking the Fablemans. And now we have Oppenheimer in that position. But we don't know what the scrappy underdog is that's going to take it down. Okay. So we play out this I, I... dumb game where we pretend like we know what's going to win Best Picture based on nothing. Right? And then we give no. voters no options. You know, if they don't like that movie, they feel forced into voting for it and they don't like it. So they pick something else. It happens every year. OK, so um, but I have not noticed, read, heard anything significant. There's a pushback against Oppenheimer so far. It's been pretty much I mean, even I I'm not a huge fan of the film, but I, I recognize that what they're talking about when they say it's a really good film and it, would, it should it should be the best picture. I, I don't have a huge argument. I don't have I any hope that it does. I, I think it deserves to win because mm -hmm. of Christopher mm -hmm. Nolan's legacy, his his commitment to film, to movie theaters. Yes. Um, I think all of that should be taken into account. I actually watched the movie again the other night and though mm -hmm. it has a very rough first hour, and a lot of it is just people talking, and that's really hard to focus on. It does end beautifully. And I think the ending might matter. I have a really hard time believing that they're actually going to pick the front runner to win. Maybe they will. I'll be excited if they do. But it just isn't the way it goes in the Oscar race these days. It, I could see it being something like, God, like, what if it's past lives? Or, you know, um, what if That it's can't possibly happen. Past lives. You that's, never know. that's a small cult of Sundance people, and you know, 
like that. Well, maybe it's maybe it's the holdovers. Maybe the holdovers surprises everybody and wins. Maybe that's the movie people wrap their that heart. That is in. conceivable. That is conceivable because that is definitely. And I know that your friend or our friend wrote that it might be this year's Green Book or whatever. But mm -hmm. first of all, it's not really like Green Book, but it does have that same warm the cockles of your heart kind of feeling yep. about it. And if people and decide, like it. right? Yeah, and if they decide they want to embrace that movie, maybe they give Best Director to Christopher Nolan and they give Best Picture to the Holdovers. Maybe. And Best Screenplay to the Holdovers. Um, you know, I mean, That's I could see it for sure, right? The, I mean, I don't. But you've been you were the first one on the, the Giamatti best actor is going to win might very well win and then came Kyle Buchanan of the New York Times and now Scott Feinberg is going to yeah I I think that I thought for a long time that Bradley Cooper was going to win and he might still win I'm not saying he won't but I think mm -hmm. if you compare Bradley Cooper to Paul Giamatti you see a guy who Paul Giamatti a humble man whose hum humility plays to his advantage in a situation like this one up against bradley cooper for instance um i don't think killian murphy is going to win because i think that if oppenheimer is close to you know that they like to divide best picture best actor he he might win i don't know but i could see well, people going for with, but killian murphy isn't playing a human being let's be honest he plays some kind of humanoid with the strangest behavioral tics and the strangest look in his eyes. He does not play my well, He's He's, he's brilliantly playing Oppenheimer. And if you knew Oppenheimer, if you read the book like I did, if you saw the videos of him, you would see how... Well, I saw the documentary about um, the a day, after, a day after Trinity. Yeah, and he, was... he nails it. He gets him just right. I mean, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, I loved it. I, I can't say anything negative about that performance. I, I would be happy if he won... Look, these are all good performances, all three of them. Like Bradley Cooper's mm. performance, whether no matter what you think about the movie, it's still a good performance, right? Mm. And um, and Paul Giamatti, I think, would bring the house down if he won, just because he's such an underrated character actor, you know. Yeah, um, and he's and how even... how well known is the narrative from two thousand four, two thousand five, in which his signature role that when you think of Paul Giamatti before the holdover. You think automatically of Miles. He's the he's one of the great performances of this century. Yeah, no question. And he but wasn't I, but I, even nominated. No, he wasn't nominated. And I'm thinking that the holdovers this year stands out because it makes your heart sing, and it's the only one that does. As good mm -hmm. as Oppenheimer is, right? And it is good. As good as you know, pick any movie. Um, right. Maybe maybe Barbie would fit this. I don't know, but but this mm -hmm. is the only one where the characters have an arc and are redeemed at the end of it, right? Uh, right. Oppenheimer is depressing, <laughs> right? So Oppenheimer isn't a redemptive story. It's well, not. Um, it doesn't. When you say the ending of Oppenheimer really nails it, uh, you... sir, we are closed right now. Actually. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, we pulled that. We pulled that they're closed at this cold thing. I guess we're going to have to wrap it up, then, because I can't stand out in the cold. That um, how cold is it? Um, I was standing out there for about 20 minutes, and All I right. kind of just had to come inside. I didn't realize. Okay. Were All closed. right. Well, listen, Happy New Year, and we'll we'll get our shit together in the new year for the next podcast. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can put together for this one. But Okay. All righty. We, we, we did okay. That was a nice chat. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. All, All right. right. Have a nice Sunday. Me have too. a nice uh, New Year's Eve. Yeah.
I'm not going to do, do anything. anything. No, I'm not. <laughs> I haven't done any. I haven't celebrated New Year's Eve in about, jeez, 15 years yeah. or so. I'll probably just watch yeah. the Twilight Zone and be done with it. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye.